Hi, I'm Carmen LeBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio. Good morning. Good morning. It is the 30th of June, which when I said that to myself this morning, my mind said back 30 days has September, April, June and November. All the rest have 31 except for February, which I've completely lose count of. So uh, today's the day, last day of our fiscal year here at Faith Radio. This is listener supported radio. So if you appreciate this programming, if you find value in what we do live on air or maybe streaming at MyFaithRadio.com, maybe you use the app, Faith Radio app, today would be a great day to give. Great day to give a one-time gift or become an ongoing monthly supporter. Either way, invite you to text the word GIVE to 877-933-2484 um, or give online at MyFaithRadio.com. And thank you in advance. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love what I do and your gifts make it possible. So <laughs> tremendously grateful for the people who financially support Faith Radio. Um, so three quick international headlines. I don't actually know if there's three. I started off with the plan to have three and then I came up with more than three. So some list here of international headlines that I think we all need to be aware of this morning as we prepare to enter into this day well-informed as God's people in the world. We're seeking to bring the mind of Christ to bear on the issues of the day. So here are a few of those issues. Finland and Sweden have gone from neutral to NATO. That's my uh, top headline out of Europe this morning. NATO has officially invited Finland and Sweden to join. What does that mean? Well, that means that every NATO country, including the United States, now has a functional 800-plus-mile direct border with Russia. Yeah. Uh, how you? How so, you ask? Well, NATO countries, for NATO countries, every square inch of any NATO nation is treated as sovereign territory of every NATO nation when it comes to Russia. So that means that uh, for the United States, the Finnish border uh, with Russia is now a NATO border, or soon will be, and when that happens... It becomes our border to defend as well. So the president of the United States has committed to increasing America's military presence in Europe by some 20,000 troops. I think that raises our number of uh, military personnel in Europe to something like 100,000. Russia has responded this morning by warning Finland and Sweden not to host any NATO, quote unquote, infrastructure. That's people or stuff. Um, Specifically, the president, um, our president, announced plans to permanently headquarter U.S. uh, Army Corps in Poland, adding a rotational brigade in Europe stationed in Romania, increasing rotational deployments in the Baltic states. Uh, And each one of those um, moves bolsters uh, NATO's forces on the eastern flank. The eastern flank of what? Yeah, mm -hmm, that'd be Russia. So um, that's what's going on in terms of why the president is in Europe and what he's doing while he's there. The president also highlighted plans to send two additional Navy destroyers to Spain and two more F-35 squadrons to the United Kingdom, adding to our air defense capabilities in both Germany and Italy. 
And you say to yourself, hmm, that sounds like a bit of a buildup. Yeah, I think I will say it this way. The Cold War is back and the climate has changed from cold to warm. Pivot now to people in desperate and dire need around the world in uh, multiple locations. Bangladesh, 7 million people are in immediate need of shelter due to widespread flooding there. There's also widespread flooding in China, but that has displaced uh, to this point some 4 million people. People across Africa are facing famine in very real time, some 4 million people in Kenya alone. 22 million people on the island nation of Sri Lanka are in an active state of national collapse as hyperinflation is running at 54 percent, 54 percent. Fuel, food and medicine um, have become scarce in that country, which which you know has been considered sort of a middle economic player um, for a number of years now. Add to that uh, list the ongoing crises in places like Haiti, Venezuela, Central America, Lebanon, Yemen, Nigeria, and you are saying to yourself, wow, wow, the world is a mess. Yes, people are really suffering right now on a massive global scale. We have more than 100 million people currently living um, as refugees, displaced from homes to which they cannot return. And we're going to turn from there to the current challenges here in the United States. And as we do so, we need to be mindful that God has the whole world in his view, the whole world in his hands. Every person in every place is of deep concern to the Lord our God. He shows no partiality. His concern is for the least and the lost everywhere. And this is a small world after all. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. Ben Johnson joins us next. My right, a right given by God to live a free life, to live in freedom. What does it mean to live in freedom? Um, What are our rights and how do we rightly apply the mind of Christ to those conversations today? Ben Johnson joins us regularly. He's a pastor. He also uh, tweets at the rights writer and um, serves on the writing and editorial staff at the Washington Stand. You can find what he's working on at WashingtonStand.com. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Carmen. So obviously lots of pro-life conversations swirling around, um, fair amount of debate about um, what I would describe as the advocacy that, that that I think is in play now, which is that we go from pro-life, meaning exclusively a concern for the status of the preborn um, and abortion, to a whole life ethic coming alongside those who are pregnant and um, will now need a support system, a family of faith to help them um, in ways that, uh, you know, are going to lead to flourishing for that woman and and for her child or children. Talk talk with us about this conversation that is taking place about whole life in, in relationship to the pro-life conversation 
um, that has often meant uh, abortion, uh, you know, the removal of defeat of reversal of Roe v. Wade. Right. Well, we uh, finally we finally made it in terms of Roe v. Wade. That's been the great fight my entire lifetime. Uh, I've been uh, pro-life most of my life. And uh, from the time that I was a young child, I'm not uh, really what would qualify as young anymore. And uh, we've finally seen Roe v. Wade overturned. So uh, this is this is something that uh, many of us thought might never come about. Uh, It's right that we're celebrating at this time. It's right that we continue to focus on abortion as we go forward. Uh, and at this point, the uh, the battle to uh, to assure that human life and human dignity is upheld and respected by the law uh, simply changes and shifts a bit. Uh, and uh, so we, we continue to focus on life, but uh, we've had some victories that, uh, again, many of us did not forecast or did not see coming forward. Uh, and so in many states now, life is protected to a far greater degree than it ever has been before. Uh, Mississippi, of course, started the ball. There are uh, ultimately probably about uh, a little bit more than half of the states that will uh, go a long way toward protecting life in law. But then there's a question of how do we properly respect life going forward? Uh, there's all. Which uh, I oh, think okay. is far He's under. Or not pro life, you're simply. All right. Uh, ben is uh, cycling in and out. That is a technology issue. That is not a Ben issue. I assure you he's still talking. So we're going to take a quick break while we reconnect with Ben Johnson. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. All right, this really is live radio, and I really am Carmen LaBerge, and I really am on air right now. Uh, Not like what is apparently going on in Vancouver, where a radio station has been playing the same song, the same song on an endless loop for um, more than two days now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's apparently in protest of the firing of a couple of disc jockeys. Uh, This is live radio. This is uh, Faith Radio. You can find us at MyFaithRadio.com. And we're not playing anything on a loop except Jesus There you go. Uh, Ben Johnson is with us. Uh, Ben, we were in the middle of a conversation when technology failed us. So pick up where we left off in our conversation about um, pro-life, which has traditionally, in the minds of many, many people, meant um, advocacy for the pre-born in terms of the reversal of Roe v. Wade, which has been achieved, and now a growing conversation about what it means to be whole life. That's right. And uh, my apologies for the technological glitch there. Uh, essentially, where we are right now uh, is is not that we have established life uh, nationally. Uh, we've simply removed the artificial block that the Supreme Court has put in the way of democracy for us being able to protect life nationwide. And uh, we are essentially what uh, Stephen Douglas called popular sovereignty, or what the Book of Judges says, every man will do what is right in his own eyes. Mm-hmm. So some states will protect life. Some states will go even further in undermining life. And if America can't survive half slave and half free, it certainly can't survive half alive and half dead. So I think that the legislative battle is going to continue. It is simply going to be longer and more protracted. And uh, we're not going to have the kind of we're going to have rapid victories in the coming days and then a long protracted period where very little will be done legislatively, uh, although uh, perhaps something could be done legally. 
so the the argument here is in what way can we greater uh, and in what way can we support life to an even greater degree uh, and much of this focuses on what we have been doing through pregnancy resource centers through supporting women uh, and through supporting those who are in most need in this area now there is a conversation among some that uh, they want to broaden that beyond simply abortion to uh, to say that it's a pro-life cause to take care of the poor in in various uh, ways beyond those who are uh, at risk of abortion. Obviously, that is one of the things that the church does. We do care for the poor. Uh, we care for those who are in need. We care for the homeless. And there are some wonderful ministries that are taking place in that realm. Uh, for example, in San Diego, the Salvation Army hires homeless people to go and drive around and collect food that would go to waste and give it to the needy. Uh, there's a movement among certain churches that they're building you know, the tiny house movement. They build tiny houses for the homeless on church lots. Uh, so it's, uh, there are some spectacular things that are taking place. Now, the issue is, I think it's very important for us who are in the pro-life movement to maintain our focus uh, that those are important things and those are important church ministries. I believe it's important for us to, to say if pro-life is everything, then pro-life is nothing. We do need to focus uh, on the continued need to protect life in law and to uh, to assure that life is protected from conception through natural death. And there are a number of ways where that is going to be important, both legislatively and legally. Uh, so it's important for us to continue to focus on that and at the same time to support women, to support um, to support the needy, to support those who are struggling in life. Uh, and, and that that very well is part of our ministry, but it is not necessarily uh, related to this issue. And I, and although it's important to support those who are already alive, uh, when someone is killed, the Bible says that the blood of, cries out from the ground for God's justice. So we must continue uh, to support uh, the complete eradication of all abortion. All right, Ben. Um... This is going to be a historic day in the Supreme Court um, in the midst of a season of days that have felt very historic. Um, one Supreme Court justice is officially retiring and uh, he will be replaced. That's Stephen Breyer. He will be replaced with Katanji Brown Jackson. Um, I uh, was reminded that um, there was a woman nominated to the Supreme Court by President Bush. And I'm wondering if you could tell us the story of Harriet Myers and how it relates to um, to what we're dealing with today, because Justice Alito uh, serves so largely, uh, at least in terms of this Dobbs opinion. He has done such a marvelous job for the last 17 years, and it really all goes back to 2005. President George W. Bush had two vacancies come up on the Supreme Court. Uh, we had had a long string of Republican appointees who uh, seemed to be on the right side when it came to interpreting the Constitution, but they either, quote-unquote, evolved and grew in office, or, as it turned out, there were stealth candidates like David Souter, who actually supported the other side all along. But uh, because of what happened to Robert Bork, they were, uh, we were assured that they were pro-life, but that they didn't have any record that we could look into, but we would be very pleased, and we, t- we ended up being very disappointed. So along came two vacancies. Uh, Chief Justice uh, Rehnquist stepped down and John Roberts was appointed there. And then we had another vacancy come up and Harriet Myers was um, was named to the to, uh, to to fill this. Now, Harriet Myers had been George W. Bush's personal attorney. She had been a corporate attorney. She had never focused on constitutional law, had no record. 
And she had given some speeches that were highly concerning when it came to their content about pro-life advocates and about uh, about her general opinion when it came to abortion, although her remarks were somewhat cryptic. There was a division within the evangelical movement. Some people uh, who knew her, her previous pastor in Texas uh, were assured that she was a very faithful woman and uh, that she would she would vote in the right way because of her religious views. And others said, we, we have a vacancy, we have an opportunity to name someone who could overturn Roe v. Wade. We need to assure that this person is bulletproof because the left never takes a chance when they name their nominees. About half of those who were named by Republicans end up supporting abortion. The other side always support abortion 100% of the time as a litmus test. So there was, there was a movement against the Republican Party from within the evangelical movement, uh, led in large part uh, by, by um, uh, my boss, Tony Perkins at uh, FRC. Gary Bauer was involved in it, many, many others. And there were good evangelicals on both sides, good Christians on both sides. Uh, she had many supporters who were, who were good friends of mine uh, and who knew her personally. But when it came to this movement, we said we cannot afford to take a chance. And those people, again, Alan Keyes, Pat Buchanan, others whose names uh, people would know, stepped forward and said, we have to have someone who is beyond reproach, uh, whose, whose views are known, and we will make sure that we support them popularly. We, we bring up and uh, have enough votes to get them across the finish line. And Samuel Alito was the one who was named. And then 17 years later, who writes the opinion that overturns Roe v. Wade? Instead of a, a cryptic nominee who probably would have, have disappointed us in some way, we have someone we know has a rock-ribbed constitutional point of view and ultimately brought that jurisprudence to bear in overturning the greatest judicial travesty in the history of the Supreme Court. Ben, um, as always, thank you so much for uh, reminding us of things in the past that we probably had lost track of Um we do have people noting um, online this is this is actually not the way the Supreme Court is supposed to work um, in terms of nominations. It's not supposed to be our side or their side. Who's on which side? How do we expect them to vote? It's supposed to be loyalty to the Constitution. Yeah, Ben, I think you and I would both uh, agree with that. And yet this is the reality of the world in which we live. Um, the I don't think any any branch of the U.S. government is currently working as it was envisioned to work and not working in relationship to one another as they were envisioned to work. And so uh, it's a good time. It's a good time as we move into this Fourth of July weekend to think about the foundations of the country, to think about the opening um, lines of the Declaration of Independence, to acknowledge the creator God um, and those of uh, and, and that every person, every person is created in his image and ultimately lives under his sovereignty. Um, Want to add any reflection um, on July 4th as we approach the holiday weekend? Well, you know, uh, we, we have a, a culture right now that says that America doesn't deserve to be celebrated. Uh, American exceptionalism is still a fact throughout world history. Anyone who looks at world history sees just how privileged we are to live in this time, space, moment, and place. Uh, the fact that we enjoy religious liberty is something that's virtually unheard of uh, throughout all of human history. The ability to go to the church of our choice, uh, to worship in a fashion that fits our conscience instead of that of the ruler, that deserves celebration, that deserves defense. And so it's very important for us. Second of all, as Christians, we believe we have a duty, not just to everyone everywhere, but in a very specific time and place. We were born as Americans, and it's part of our duty to support the United States of America 
for that purpose. Uh, there was a wonderful letter called the Letter of St. Barnabas, the Epistle of St. Barnabas, as it's called in some areas, where he says that Christians are not distinguished from one another by the way that we dress, by our customs. Wherever we live, we fit in with everyone where we are. Uh, what distinguishes us is that as the soul is to the body, so Christians are in the world, that we enliven the nation. And so the most important thing that we can do if we want to revive this country is to live our faith, which means we have to have a faith. We have to live out our faith. And if we rise, then a rising tide truly does lift all boats. We can revive the soul of this nation by saving our souls and those of uh, our neighbors and our family members and everyone around us. Ben, as always, uh, thank you so much. That's Ben Johnson. You can find him tweeting as The Rights Writer. You can also now find him at WashingtonStand.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. The, uh, the southern border and conversations related to the southern border um, is an acknowledgement that many, many people want to come to the United States. They want to um, seek opportunities here that they do not have where they live now. Uh, more than 100 nations are represented represented in the migrant flow uh, at the U.S. southern border. We um, We are all aware of the absolutely horrific news of more than 50 uh, human beings who died um, as as a result of being trafficked in an unconditioned, unair conditioned, sealed semi trailer in um, in heat above a hundred degrees in uh, in Texas, where we are talking about um, precious human life, and we're talking about the desire that people have, the very real desire to provide for their families and themselves and to move to a place where there is the hope of a better life and opportunity. And that is the United States of America for many, many people. Um, As we surveyed the international headlines earlier, I mean, I hope that you came to an awareness that as bad as you think it is here, as bad as things are here, things are so much worse um, other places around the world. And that means that things are desperately bad for many, many people which means that more and more people are going to want to come to the place where things are not as desperately bad as they are where they live. This is a conversation about immigration. This is a conversation about um, welcoming the stranger. This is a conversation about refugees. And this is a conversation about the body of Christ. Josh Sharif um, was born in Egypt. He was a Muslim. He now lives here in the United States of America, and he's a Christian. And he has something to say to us today about the stranger at our shore. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Welcoming Josh Sharif uh, to Mornings with Carmen. Josh, it's great to have you. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. All right, it's really nice to meet you, albeit um, albeit over the uh, over the technology right now. I'd love for you to introduce yourself um, to our audience. 
Uh, Josh comes to us today as the author of The Stranger at Our Shore, How Immigrants and Refugees Strengthen the Church. He also comes as just a, a brother in Christ. And so, Josh, tell us your story. Yeah, you know, uh, for me, I'm an, I'm an immigrant from Egypt. I came to this country at about years old, eight years old, and I grew up um, outside the faith. I grew up in a Muslim home, and, you know, that, that home was, I would say, more nominal Muslim, culturally very Muslim, but it was, uh, for me, the beginning of searching for God when my father had a health scare, had a heart attack, and became very religious. And at that point, um, I got serious about my Muslim faith and wanted to become an imam. Um, and that was the world that I knew and grew up in, was this uh, Muslim world in Egypt, until I came to the U.S., where I lived with my grandmother, me and my family. My mother and my sister lived with my grandmother, who was the first Christian in our family who left Egypt because of the persecution and was introduced to um, Almighty God in, in, in a way that changed my life forever. All right, so I'm going to fast forward to a question that I had um, later, uh, had I anticipated asking you later, but now I want to ask, um, who is Mama Annette? Yes, so that, that is my, my grandmother, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, she... In Egypt, she was a um, movie star and a producer and um, very influential and very wealthy. And then one day, um, she was introduced to Jesus by one of her employees at at a point in her life where she was looking for um, something more and and really at her wits end with with this world pursuing um, pleasure and power and she was introduced to Jesus by a humble man and completely changed her life and changed the course of our family's life. You know, I, I love um, this part of your testimony, Josh, because it is it helps us see um, the influence that we can have um, in the workplace, um, the, the influence that we can have even in people who we might find intimidating or, um, I mean, I'm just guessing that this individual, this employee who lived as a Christian in the presence of Mama Annette and then shared um, Christ in a way that was um, invitational and compelling and drew her in. Um, it led her to a very different life. And ultimately, you know, that has generational influence and impact. Talk about um, coming from Egypt to the United States, um, because one of the things that you talk so uh, compellingly about in your book is feeling like a foreigner for a really long time, even in the midst of the the church. So the book is The Stranger at Our Shore, How Immigrants and Refugees Strengthen the Church. Josh Sharif is the author. You can find him on Twitter at Josh Sharif, S-H-E-R-I-F, um, also on Instagram. Tell us about feeling like a foreigner, even in the midst, I mean, as a Christian, even in the midst of the church here in the United States of America. Yeah, you know, when you come from another co- country and culture and language, um, there's a lot of things you gain as you step into the U.S. and to whatever culture you're stepping into as a as an immigrant. But with every new gain, there is there is a sense of grief, something that you're leaving behind or or no longer participating in. And so, um, for me, I was constantly aware of of the fact 
um, that, you know, I was an outsider and a stranger. Um, I would say the church was the, the one place that, that welcomed us in, loved us and accepted us and made us feel, you know, not like a project, not like a, um, you know, people to be pitied, but really saw great value in us and invested in us. Um, talk about where in the United States this is, you know, give us a little bit of social location here in terms of growing up and then tell us where you are now and what you're doing. Sure. So when we when we first came into the U.S., we came in on the West Coast. So actually a little bit closer climate um, to to Egypt. And then um, because of my family's conversion and our, us making a decision for Christ, that put our family in jeopardy. And so um, we actually went um, to the middle of the U.S., to the Midwest, um, where a church took us in and we were living in really anonymously and hiding for 10 years. And um, I've stayed in the Midwest, so I'm in the city of, of Chicago. And, um, you know, over the last 10 years, I've, I've planted a church in a neighborhood called um, Albany Park. And that was an amazing journey of just seeing a multicultural church rise up. Right now, I'm in a new role, bivocational role. I, I work a secular job, but m- my hope and um, my passion, what I think God's called me to, is to help equip congregations, churches to to make disciples and reach those around them, uh, some who are going to be um, strangers, foreigners, immigrants. But, but I think sometimes the, the people who who are strangers. And I, I felt like I try to keep this in mind while I wrote the book. Sometimes the stranger um, is in our own family sitting across the room. And so um, that's my hope to help equip people to, to make disciples and share the gospel. You talk about the plight of um, modern day sojourners in our land. Um, you talk about uh, the strangers at our shore and the ones living right next door. Um, you talk about this return as Christians and as the church to wholeheartedly um, live into its first calling, its first charge to make disciples. So let me ask you, when you say that, what does it mean to make a disciple and how do you know when a disciple is made? Sure. You know, I think for me, the the measure of a, I'll kind of answer backwards, health of a disciple is reproduction. It's mm. dis- the goal is disciples who make disciples. It is the gospel message when the gospel message that our identity in Christ and who we are in God's family takes root in our hearts and in our lives, it reproduces itself. So, um, so that that's what I think we're looking for. We're looking for healthy reproduction, um, and um, I think to to be a disciple of Jesus is to is to go on that journey with Jesus to to seek to carry a cross daily, to to be students of Jesus, and to seek wholeheartedly um, after him. So we're talking with Josh Sharif. We're talking about his, I'm saying it's brand new. I'm not even sure it's out yet. The Stranger at the Shore, How Immigrants and Refugees Strengthen the Church. Is the book even out yet? It is, yes. So it came out oh. um, a couple weeks ago. So All right. Congratulations. Yeah. Very, it's very exciting. Okay, so uh, the stranger at the shore: How immigrants and refugees strengthen the church. I want you to walk us um, into some of the conversation that you unpack 
um, in the book, you offer three observations about the problems that, you know, we face individually and institutionally um, in terms of, you know, living in fear, really, um, as opposed to living in, in an open embrace of the other. So can you talk about um, inadequacy, ignorance and indignation? I know we can't unpack them all, but can you can you just highlight something from each of those? Because I think that understanding the problem helps us get to um, a conversation about the solution. Yeah, definitely. And my heart as I wrote this book is to um, really say the church did so much amazing things in my life. I want to see that reproduced. My hope is to not beat down the church, but encourage the church. And so uh, the uh, problems I identify, inadequacy really deals with the the question of, uh, you, you know, why why me? Why would God use me for work like this? And I point to the disciples who were unschooled, ordinary men, but, you know, the teachers of the law, when they were doing miraculous things, took note that they'd been with Jesus. That That's their qualification. And um, and then I talk about the idea, too, of um, of ignorance and, and really demystifying the, the kind of expert mentality that we sometimes get into. You don't need to be an expert in, in another faith to, to reach somebody. In fact, you know, when I approach somebody on the street who maybe is from the same cultural background than me in my neighborhood, they expect me to know their culture, language, customs, and there's a lot of unsaid there. But what I've seen is that some of our best disciple makers um, are people who are from completely different cultures because there's a mutuality there. Um, you're learning each other's languages. You're, ask, you're asking about each other's family structures and life, and you're eating each other's food, and you're learning there. And there's so much grace in a relationship like that. Um, and, and, and every individual is different. And then um, lastly, indignation, and that is stepping away from some of our fear and, and some of the the things that inform our view of other people. And, and I would say to go as far as to say, there's some people who read my book and say, oh, this is right on. This is my heart for refugees and immigrants. This is exactly what I, what I want to say that sometimes people, even in that category, will could have be harboring indignation for others who are not there yet. Um who are brothers and sisters in Christ who don't have that heart yet. And I want to say we need to get rid of all indignation, not just shift it. Mm. Okay. So see, that is so good. When you get rid of it, not just shift it. I think that, um, Oh, I think that um, the inadequacy conversation is, is essential. The, the ignorance conversation is really helpful, but the indignation conversation um is the heart, I mean, that is the deep, deep heart question. Do I sincerely believe that God loves everyone without partiality? I mean, do do I really believe that God loves um, people in places and spaces and circumstances that I really cannot imagine from my current uh, place? Um, God loves them just as much as he loves me. There's no, um, there's no difference in the magnitude of God's desire to see human flourishing for every human being created in his image, every single one, um, and that all would come to know uh, the goodness of his grace in Jesus Christ uh, and, and and a life then transformed. Um, I just in community, like in the church, like all of that, all of that bound up together. And you do such a wonderful job um, walking us, frankly, very gently into a conversation that many people are afraid to 
to engage. So I love the content of the book, but I also love the voice and the spirit in which it's written. The book is The Stranger at Our Shore, How Immigrants and Refugees Strengthen the Church. Josh Sharif is the author. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with Josh Sharif. He is uh, a brother in Christ. He is a Christian pastor. He lives in the greater Chicago area. He's also the author of The Stranger at Our Shore, How Immigrants and Refugees Strengthen the Church. Josh comes out of um, uh, an experience of growing up um, in a Muslim home. He uh, immigrated to the United States from Egypt when he was a child. So he's Lots of firsthand experience uh, in the conversations that he is leading us into in this book and here today on air. So, Josh, again, thank you so much for joining us. This sentence in the book struck a chord with me. There are Christians who hate Islam more than they love Muslim people. Their motivation is to attack an ideology rather than to engage a person. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I think this is this is something that I've experienced. And, um, you know, I say in the book that because of my 10 years of living on the run and fearing for uh, our lives, especially my mother's life, because of our conversion from Islam, you know, that I have reasons to, to have an issue with Islam and, and Muslim people. But um, what I've discovered in the gospel is a great compassion that that. W- we were all once enemies of Christ, Scripture says, but but He um, sacrificed, He put down His life for us. And so for me, what that has done is um, created a compassion as somebody who came out of that, that background. But sometimes I think there's, there's a sense of human nature where um, we kind of reject the people with the ideology or with the culture or with whatever— um, we find offensive. Um, and so I think that's certainly happened um, in, in this country. And I don't think it's unique to this country. And I don't think it's unique to um, Islam. I think that's that's part of the human nature is to uh, begin to see other people as, as, as less than or evil because of something that is, is part of them. You know, we, we've rejected that ideology. And so we reject them as well. Mm. Talk with us about the um, positive steps we need to take moving forward. They're hard steps, um, but they are positive solutions. Love, prayer, and blessing. Talk about the power of love um, in particular. Yeah, for me, um, the power of love, I'm talking, of course, no no one would disagree with the idea of love and prayer and blessing. But when I, when I talk about uh, what I talk about in that chapter— is really the idea of of moving past charity and into family. You know, I'll, I'll share a, a key story for me. You know, when we were living on the run and this church in the Midwest took us in, we were in this empty apartment in this new place, and we were scared. And we had we had nothing, and a family moved it moved, or came over with a bunch of furniture for us from the church. And I remember that that family had. Uh, brought their uh, young boy with them, who was my age. And that boy, uh, his name is Andrew. And we immediately became friends. In fact, best friends. I was best man at his wedding. 
and he was best man at my wedding and we're still friends to this day. Um, and I think for me, that illustrates what the church did for me is it was, we didn't, we weren't just a charity case and, um, a project, but we were true people that were valuable and, and, and worthy of love. And so it's, it's about moving past, you know, what we can do in an organization level and, and seating people around our table. And I think that's deeper work, but I think those bridges are what really share the gospel in a powerful way. Yeah. It's notable to me. They, they, um, they brought furniture, right? They brought you a table and then they sat with you at it. Like there is a, um, there, there is a, there's one thing to invite people into my home to sit at my table um, as my guest. It's another thing to provide for people in such a way that they can then in, invite me back, right? Um, that we sure. can sit at table with one another um, and and I can eat their food and they can eat mine, right? You're, uh, that, um, that, uh, that what is that moment um, in relationship to uh, the, the girl who asks about the pita, Right. Like, right. Like, what, what? Yeah. It's um, because the bread that we break together at your table, um, we might break differently than the bread that we break at my table. But um, it's in the breaking of the bread that Christ is made known among us. Yeah. And I think there's there is something powerful about extending grace both ways. And um, in the places we don't know, we can actually learn a lot from each other. Mm. I may mispronounce this name, but who is Baba Rauf? So Baba Rauf um, was also, so he was my step-grandfather who uh, my grandmother was married to when we moved in with him. He actually passed um, last Christmas Eve, and so mm. I was able to add him to this. But he was uh, a man of God who, um, Mama Niet introduced our whole family to Christ, but I say, you know, he he really discipled us to how to live like Jesus. Mm. I love that. I love that. Um, when you, um, you know, fast forward ahead, um, you know, just know that other people are watching you. Um, you are seen. Your witness and testimony is really essential to the conversation that we as a body of believers need to not only have, but we have to be led into it. And so thank you for doing this. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for your willingness to lead others into um, this, what for some people is a very challenging and even fear-filled conversation. Um, But the body of Christ is big and it is beautiful and it is really diverse and it's global. um, And it's, it has the potential to be right next door if I would open myself to that possibility. So thank you for helping us do that and for equipping the church going forward um, in this goal of making disciples who who reproduce um, discipleship in others. It's such a gift. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. Thank you so much for those kind words, and thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. That's Josh Sharif, S-H-E-R-I-F. If you're looking for him online, the book is The Stranger at Our Shore, How Immigrants and Refugees Strengthen the Church. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee, across the plains of Texas, from sea to shining sea. Mm. 
we are entering into a holiday weekend, July the 4th, just recognizing um, the the gift of the place that we live, um, maybe acknowledging how our own families arrived here. Um, I, I appreciate and love that, you know, Josh is looking back at his grandmother and his step-grandfather. He's looking back at people um, who were a part of churches that made room for them and made way for them, um, hid them for a decade um, as others were pursuing them um, across an ocean halfway around the world. Um, for making a decision for Christ. And I don't know that we often think about that reality when we see new immigrants here, that they are, that they have fled, many of them, because they are Christians. So that may uh, change the way that you see someone today um, or in the coming days. And uh, if so, then uh, I think having the conversation with Josh was really important and essential as we enter into a weekend when we celebrate having come to a new place and making of it a new land, each and every one of us initially as immigrants. All right, we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. So don't go away. Peter Kapsner will be here. And then a real treat, Brant Hansen. That's in the next hour here on Mornings with Carmen. Today is the last day of our fiscal year. If you haven't done so already, today's a great day to give a gift. Text the word GIFT to 877-933-2484 or give online at MyFaithRadio.com. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.